Welcome to Rave Dad's Diary, the show that explores the globalization of electronic dance music from the perspective of a rural Alberta boy turned raver. I'm your host and resident Rave Dad, Paul Brooks. Rave Dad's Diary broadcasts on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary at the University of Calgary campus and community radio station located on Treaty 7 land. I acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Siksika, the Pagani, and Kaina First Nations, the Sutina First Nation, and the Stony Nakoda. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. On tonight's episode, I talked to Dan Solo and Sandro Petrillo about the influential bass music party, Modern Math, which ran in Calgary, Alberta from 2009 to 2011. We'll also hear from burlesque legend Crystal Precious about her influential artist studio, Dollhouse Studios. And I say studio with air quotes, because if you were ever lucky enough to visit the Dollhouse, you know it was much, much more than just a studio. In the last hour of the show, we'll listen to a mix recorded in 2009 by Dan and Sandro under their former Piranha Piranha moniker. This mix brought back a lot of memories for me. Please stick around for that. Thank you to everyone who's reached out and shown support for Rave Dad's Diary through the Rave Dad's Diary Instagram and through CJSW 90.9 FM. I'm trying a little experiment. I've started a Rave Dad's Diary Facebook group. I envision it as a place to connect and discuss ideas and questions from the show. I'd love it if you joined the conversation. And please, do me a favor. If you like Rave Dad's Diary, share the show with a friend. We are going to be spending pretty much all of today's episode in the year 2009. To help us get there, let's listen to a track by Piranha Piranha called One Hitter, produced in the basement studio of our little house at 525 18A Street Northwest in Calgary.
spring 2009, Sheena and I got a new roommate named Sandro. Sandro took over the basement of our house in West Hillhurst. We three roommates hit it off. Sandro's mom's an interior designer, so he brought with him all kinds of amazing stuff. Fancy coffee tables, framed prints, fake plants, and he swagged out the house with his impeccable sense of style. We were all experimenting with new, low-end frequencies that were just beginning to wash up on the shores of North America. The bass music scene we were a part of in Calgary was small, but growing. As Sheena and I touched on in episode 2 of Rave Dad's Diary, British producer and DJ Scream's back-to-back -back Shambhala Music Festival performances in 2007 and 2008 ignited many people's interest in dubstep and all things sub-bass. Sandro built a studio in the basement of the house. He had recently become friends with local DJ and Phonics record store proprietor Dan Solo. Dan and Sandro started spending hours in the studio. Strange sounds and haze oozed from the studio at night, and in the day, I taught violin lessons on the main floor. Shout out to my neighbor, Bev. Inspired by this new and powerful current of electronic music, Dan and Sandro and a close group of friends, including Sheena, aka Donna Data, and Kaylee, aka Thief, conspired to start a club night where they could showcase local producers and DJs alongside artists at the vanguard of underground bass music. On October 9th, 2009, Modern Math transformed a dank bar called Lord Nelson's Bar and Grill into a throbbing and sweaty sound system party for the first time and kicked off a new era of dance music culture in Calgary. An important sidebar here is that the same month Modern Math launched, the radio show I co-hosted on 90.9 FM CJSW with my friend Shannon Long, called What Will the Neighbors Think, moved to a new block of Friday night programming. Shannon and I hosted dozens of visiting DJs and broadcast sets and interviews live on air before going out to dance every Friday, often in the talent's entourage. It was the best time ever. In mid-October 2020, Dan and I talked to Sandro over Zoom about the origins and lasting legacy of the Bass Music Weekly. Dan and I were in a socially distanced setting in Calgary, and Sandro is in Toronto. The first voice you hear is Sandro describing how he and Dan met through a mutual friend and co-worker named Lorne Burlington. I ran into Lauren Burlington one day and he was um, running into the coup, which was like a veggie restaurant on 17th Ave. And he was carrying a CDJ and I didn't really know what that was or anything at the time, but he was like, you should come see me at the record store. And at the time I, I was just like, oh, cool record store. That's tight. And then I went and visited him at the record store. I remember the night, like I left my job, I drove there. It was kind of wintry. I got there and then, yeah, there was two guys there. It was Lauren Burlington and Dan. Solo, <laughs> and then uh, in there, we, Dan and I just like started chatting, I guess. And then he was showing me some records and stuff. And then um, we talked for a little bit. And then Dan gave me this like crazy list, like that he wrote by hand of of artists to kind of check out. Like there was a 
I would say like there was like 30 names on the list and it was like, you know, you know, Brockathon Sistema, like different, like all, like stuff in that sort of range. And I took that list home and basically like studied it like crazy. And then so Dan was like cemented in my time as like this like guru of music of sorts, you know, and then I kind of just kept going and visiting him at the record store. Dan, do you remember meeting Sandro? Yeah, I do. Um, I uh, I remember Lauren telling me it was this like young guy that worked at the garden center with him, and you know he was coming in and he was super eager and um, you know was curious and and wanted to get into music, and uh, you know that was our job there is to encourage people to um, you know explore music deeper and I, I made a lot of close connections there both you guys i met you there i met evangelos there um who you know i later went on to do several projects with as well um so uh yeah no i clearly remember that and i remember sending sandro home one day with um a bunch of records that i thought he should start learning to mix on Oh yeah. Um totally. you, know, you know, like some easy easy stuff to kinda get the intro of, of mixing and beat matching and stuff like that. And then and then I remember going over to his house one night and uh having our first kind of jam session. And uh early on I was I, I was very impressed straight away by his uh how quickly he picked up on things, you know, whether it was what he was making in GarageBand as early productions or early DJing, I just, I just knew like, yeah, this guy is kind of a natural, and uh, and then not only that, we just got along. So, um, you know, it just kind of a natural friendship partnership blossomed organically, almost immediately after our first few hangouts. So, uh, Dan, you're you're kind of uh, Sandro's rape dad in a sense. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm a, few, I'm a few people's rave dad for sure. Yeah, you 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 and Lauren Burlington were kind of rave dads to uh, Sandro and I in in that era. Yeah, can't forget all the rave uncles as well. Like, <laughs> you know, all the homies, so good. And Anne, yeah. Uh, Sandro, you moved into the house that I was living in in West Hillhurst, yeah. and you moved in with Sheena, uh, Donna, Dada, and I. Mm -hmm. Um. I remember I you you moved in and you quickly set up a studio in the basement. Um, what do you guys remember about the, the the basement studio in that house in in Hillhurst? Oh, uh, stovetop <laughs> coffee hash. Um, <laughs> yeah, that that was a crazy time. That was a crazy time when we were. Yeah, we were really. I I remember the day that we were sitting down there actually. I don't know if Dan was there in that, that actual day when we were, because we were constantly perplexed with sub bass. Like, that's where we were at. We were trying to figure out the science behind making dope sub and making it huge, you know? And we were stacking things and doing all these crazy things. And yeah, I remember that space was just constantly rumbling. My, I have a, a memory of that time. You know, I think uh, personally, I think we both had some of the best, purest musical ideas that you know, we ever could have had. We were so experimental and we were so, you know, just so many ideas flowing out of us, but we lacked that, you know, that technical 
skill that would later come with time and and hours put in and just more knowledge you know i remember uh we used to always make our beats and then send them off to to various different blogs you know trying to get our songs noticed and stuff and i I have this one memory. I could probably even find the email if I searched. But we sent a song to uh, the bass music blog in the UK, which was run by Bao Binga at the time, now known as Sam Binga, um, who you know has become pretty huge out in like Western Canada's music scene. Um, we sent him a song. He actually replied, and he was like, "This is really cool. Like the percussion is great, and the." The, the ideas are awesome, but it just needs more sub bass to kind of touch on Sandro's point of like, we just hadn't tapped into this very simple thing. Like making sub bass is actually <laughs> one of the easiest things to do. <laughs> but we were perplexed and, and couldn't figure out. We just didn't know, you know, and, and so we were sitting on these like amazing songs with great ideas and great percussion and effects and all that, but just we're missing that one final punch. Mm-hmm. Um, and it came eventually for sure, but uh, that's oh, totally, you know, yeah. uh, definitely I remember that space of just being uh, full of great ideas and um, and just fun and just pure creation and uh, just, you know, yeah, loving the music and loving the time together. I, I can remember the first seeds I remember it being planted was uh, when Scream played at Shambhala in the village mm. in 2008. I would say 2008, maybe 2007, probably 2008, more realistically. Mm-hmm. But he played a set of music that sparked a fire in Western Canada. You know, it literally did. It, uh, you know, people in Vancouver were already doing, doing it, and they were friends and contemporaries of ours. But yeah. the word got back to Calgary after that. You know, lots of us were there. I was. I saw the set. It was incredible. It blew my mind. Um, he he rewound Midnight Request Line many many times. <laughs> like that track was rinsed. Yeah, it was it was incredible. Um, and uh, and then I remember coming back, and that's when Arlen at PK started throwing dubstep shows. You know, and that's where I met you and Sheena. Was at uh, I can't recall who was playing, but that it might have been N Type. Was it N Type at uh, What's that oh, venue yeah. called on, on Stephen Avenue there? Yeah, was it Juilliard's or Juilliard's, something? Juilliard's, that's it. Yeah, terrible venue for sound. You know, yeah. and, and there was like about 16 of us there. Yeah. And it was a freezing cold winter night. It was probably, yeah, it would have probably been around like maybe November, December or early 2009, late 2008, early 2009. Um, very poorly attended. They definitely lost their shirt on that show, but... You know, they were paving the way and, and and they knew that this sound was, you know, clearly the the, the next big thing to break and, and it was. I remember the I remember you and uh like Dan and Sandro, you, you were driving around looking for venues. Mm-hmm. And I remember the day that um you came to the house and you said, Yeah, we found a venue, we found Lord Nelson's. Do you remember uh the day that you discovered the venue and um what what did you think of it oh my god you walk in it's like freaking there's all sorts of different types of wood aesthetic everywhere carpets carpets faux brick like what was there three pool tables as soon as you walked in with kind of like you know patio doors um i'm pretty sure you couldn't smoke in the place but it definitely smelled like you (laughs) it was Uh, it was a dive bar for sure yeah and you know that end of downtown you know, still to this day, it's like kind of an undeveloped end of the tracks part of downtown. So, you know, 
you'd get all a mix of different characters from in there, yeah. you know. Uh, it was Sandro that did find the venue, and we had been looking for a long time and driving around and looking. I had looked at everything from, like, I had spoken to, like, Vietnamese restaurants. You know, I'm like, let us do, let us throw parties in your place. And, like, Chinese restaurants. I, had, I Everywhere, we were looking for something obscure. We were looking for something different. We didn't want it to be anywhere that anyone had ever used before. We were looking for, you know, a completely new experience for this city because that's what this night had to be. It had to be. It couldn't be, you know, no disrespect to any of the other venues or whatever, but it couldn't be at any of those places because then it would have just been another night at those places. It needed to be something new. I, I remember the, the, the dance floor. It had, like, the dance floor was, like, sunk into, yeah. the, f into the floor. And then there was a, a, a stage. Um, and then you just you brought in bass bins from PK Sound. Uh, what role did yeah. did PK Sound play in the night? A huge role. Huge, huge. Because that was, like I mean, that was at the very beginning of when PK was just kind of like starting to blow up thing as well, and starting to blow up. We got this crazy sound system that, like to this day, is just you know remarkable. It was the best and, acoustics and I think I've ever heard. You know, maybe at a few festivals when you're in the sweet spot of a stage, but I mean. The acoustics in that room, because of all the wood and the carpet and and the, the bodies, know, the, the, the bodies, the sunken dance floor, the low ceilings, everything. It was a perfect, you know, a, it was a perfect combination for essentially the feeling what it would be like right inside a subwoofer, yeah. you know. And it, it was a rave cave. It was it was incredible acoustics and and yeah, we had more than enough sound in there and it was crystal clear and. Uh, yeah, so without PK without PK sound and without the uh, acoustics of that original room, I don't think um, Modern Math would have been kind of you know as iconic as it was. I think no. that definitely played a huge role. That sound system was not light; like it showed up on a, tr a truck, like was lifted off of the back of the truck every week, and then at the very end of the night, it left. Maybe sometimes the next morning, and then we also had you know video um, walls video walls that we that was kind of something that wasn't really a thing at least in calgary you know so so to speak and, and it was was quite the setup as well and so it, it took small army to kind of like make it happen and i think yeah because that choice was made to do that it did really ignite this energy in the community that people because people would like we would have a pretty dialed in team that would like get it done and people would straggle around and like help or whatever um but it was always felt like this kind of like vibe you know there was always a vibe i i loved tearing down at the end of the night but mm -hmm. it was something that again like nowadays i think there is sometimes and i sometimes i bite my tongue and i'm like oh i'm getting old or whatever because scene, young scene kids will be like oh there's no venues and there's no, none of this and yeah for sure like that's venues are tough and we're in a totally different time now but like speaking from like a year ago and earlier it's like you really gotta Got it. If you build spot, it, they like. will come. You know, stage left of of where the DJ setup was like this, this pit of VLTs. That part of the negotiation <laughs> yeah. um, with the venue is that the VLTs had to stay operational. It's a huge part of their business. So we're like, okay, well then, what are we gonna do? We can't have like these bright shining VLTs shining off to the side. So we had to come up with a solution, and that's where we decided to do the video wall. We had this other friend who I've known since high school who was just getting into the visual hustle himself, and he's now gone on to become a very successful visual guy doing festivals and tours all over the world with his company, Bima. Um, 
So we got him to come in and build a video wall to block out the VLTs so you couldn't see that. So, so yeah, to touch on what Tanner was saying in regards to the setup, like it was a minimum three to five hour setup every night. We, we would be there at five o'clock to be set yeah. up for nine o'clock opening because the video wall took an hour. We had to move all of the chairs out of there and stack them in the back and yeah. set up all the lights and then the subs and everything. So yeah, it was a, it was a big setup every week. You know, it's yeah. unlike other DJ nights I've had where you just, you pull up and you plug in, you play your, your songs till two thirty. We were there from five thirty to three, you know, four sometimes. And so it was, it was definitely, uh, a very involved kind of labor intensive project but you know it was it was worth it in in so many more ways you know oh, totally. it, it yeah. was a valuable valuable period of my life and yeah thankful to this day for it you you just reminded me of the vlts and i remember the same old older folks would be in there you know at the beginning of the series and then they would keep coming because of their um gambling problems uh but they you know they were kind of a, <laughs> like a hidden fixture behind the behind the curtain of the video wall uh totally. except having their their teeth rattled by the the the, the sub base <laughs> can you imagine can you imagine just kind of typically going to a spot to gamble and throwing a few quarters listening to whatever's on the radio and then like your Friday night is now the most bass you've ever heard in your entire life. Like, it's so amazing. You should try and find one of those people and, and talk to them for the show. Oh, man, yeah. there was this one character. We called him Cyrus Wyrus Cyrus because we couldn't yeah. understand what he was saying. He was, he was so day drunk every time. We'd show up at 5, and he'd been there all day. And he, yeah. he, you could tell he was just this old hipster that had been around and been cool like he the way he dressed the way he carried himself and the way he danced to this music that he had never heard before he was he was a pure artist and and you know obviously a tortured soul because he was spending his later years you know drinking alone in a dive bar at the end of the city yeah. um but he you know every night he would be there and he'd be dancing till 10 11 o'clock when it started to get busy you know and he'd still be up at the bar doing all these weird hybrid cowboy jazz yeah moves you know and you couldn't understand a word he was saying but the the vibe and the energy he had there was that was just also part of the the, the myth of the, the mythos of of modern math is like you you don't you would never see a guy like that at any other venue in the city ever and still to this day so yeah yeah. Sandra, I want to talk about your posters and your and your artwork. Um, so on top of all the tremendous amount of work that you're putting into producing this event weekly, you also you were responsible for for the artistic direction uh, of, of the posters. Um, yeah, what what did what did that look like? And uh, tell me about your approach to making posters um, back when this started. Yeah, I mean, frick, I almost forgot. Like that—that that was something. That was something that came out of like a byproduct that is, I'm so proud of. Looking back at this like pile of material, um, I think we, as a crew, like Dan and I, like very much so. But then as the sort of crew grew, there was always like this sort of like graphic inspiration, um, sort of things that we were like just sharing or whatever it was. And I was just getting into kind of like using Photoshop and doing weird layering kind of stuff. And I think for the first few posters, I did a lot of borrowing and kind of collage kind of base work for the posters and kind of just tried to make these kind of like heavy graphic, like heavy sort of 
framed pieces that had this kind of like overall concept and like I shifted it as we went through, but modern math started as this very like sort of grand, um, you know, very curved uh, te text and like almost Gothic in a way. And um, I just, yeah, I started just like playing with these compositions that were again, like bor borrowing from other pieces of artwork, whether it was scans and that kind of thing. And then pretty like soon after that, I started just playing with kind of just like bolder shapes and repeating lines and that kind of stuff. And I, yeah, it would, it would be borderline psychedelic kind of like pieces, like lots of kind of um, mirrored images and that kind of stuff, like just purely highlighting who was playing and then like a backdrop on it. But people started collecting them and like I was getting quite the positive response and people, you know, it was a lot, it was this really, like again, positive feedback loop. I would, every week that they would come out, it would be this kind of like new buzz or whatever. And, mm. and that felt really good. And it was something where it was so ours that we were completely able to control it. We didn't have to bend for anyone. We didn't really need to put any major consideration into brand, like other person's brand or whatever. We just did what we did. Mm. And um, it was really liberating to kind of just like have that freedom and to sort of create something that was a little bit off. Um, but still palatable within the Calgary market. That kind of just, just kind of like became such a, a good part of what we were doing. Calgary also has the dopest, especially at that time, poster network. You know, mm -hmm. our posters are actually effective when we would put them out. Like stuff would actually go out and people would see them. Here in Toronto, like where I live now, it's such a different thing. I, I remember when I first moved here and I was I was kind of like heartbroken being like, oh my God, like, posters cannot exist here because who's going to like, where do you even put a poster in this city? Unless you're going like big bangers, like real brands, you know, for someone like us, like underground stuff, Calgary was so set up for that kind of thing where designing for that format was so natural. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Your posters were everywhere and yeah, um, everywhere. And I mean, yeah, there's no greater promotion than having a graphic design that people like steal off the streets and, and you know, put beside their, put in their bedroom or put in their house. Well, yeah, yeah, I just wanted to touch on that too. I mean, in 2009, I can't remember what social media platform we were all using the most. Like, I don't know if I was still on MySpace then. I checked out your MySpace from back then last night. <laughs> Amazing, yeah. Amazing. So, um, yeah, MySpace, uh, they, they had a great thing going. I don't know why they changed it. It was, you know, it, anyway, that's a whole other discussion. But um, but still, uh, social media hadn't become the juggernaut that it is now, you know. That wasn't where everyone was getting their event news from. Facebook hadn't created their event section yet. So we were still using, like, yeah, the organic physical posters and handbills as well. We were doing, you know, you know, uh, four by six handbill handouts and stuff, leaving them in coffee shops, leaving them in record stores. And, and then, yeah, the posters would be out and people would be taking them down and hanging them up in their house and stuff. And, you know, I remember back in my early days of, of first going to clubs and, you know, finding out about shows by posters or by, you know, um, an ad in a, in a local newspaper or like music paper or whatever. And there was like a purity to that because, you know, you, you'd get this new info every week or whatever like oh i saw this poster this is what's happening and you wouldn't know what it was going to be till you got to the show and that's what we were trying to create that magic as well you know is like every week it's going to be different and and creating that anticipation definitely helped you know fuel the what it what it became which was essentially like 
before the term viral, but the night went viral, you know, like it locally mm-hmm. went viral and then it, it spread, its reputation spread beyond the city quite quickly once people started hearing about these crazy Friday night parties in this city that most people had never heard of, you know? Mm-hmm. And it became a touch point for everything, you know, like we, we got to go to other cities and then, and, and I was hitting, getting hit up by it for design stuff and all that kind of stuff. It was, it was definitely the breeding ground for a lot of different connection. You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary on 90.9 FM CJSW. My name is Paul Brooks and my guests are Dan Solo and Sandro Petrillo. We're talking about a weekly bass music party called Modern Math that ran in Calgary, Alberta from 2009 to 2011. Next, Dan describes what it was like promoting the first Modern Math event. I remember that we had been doing promo for about probably six to eight weeks, postering hard. Um, But at the same time, um, the community was very small at that time. You know, like I remember knowing you and Sheena from seeing at, at, you know, various different parties that had been happening. Um, you know, we had our small kind of network, but the bass music scene, I thought, was quite small. These parties were not, there had only been a handful of parties. And um, and also there was no way to really know the engagement you were getting. Like, we didn't have an event yeah. online. Like, we're not like, oh, it didn't say like 300 people attending. We didn't know, you know. So we had just kind of been promoing our hardest and hoping for the best. And on the first night, a ton of people who we didn't even know existed showed up, you know, and these people ended yeah. up being kind of the next generation of, of party promoters, uh, various different styles. You know, I remember, you know, Liam and, and the kinfolk guys being there and like their whole side of yeah. friends. And I don't know who else was there on the first night, but a lot of young people that I didn't know prior to that night showed up. I don't know how they found out about the night, but they came and then they, yeah. they continued to come. And it was the first night we were all like very pleasantly surprised and blown away by the response. You know, we were confident we had something cool, but we didn't think it was going to be that well received on the very first night. What was your favorite show, Dan, from Modern Math? Most memorable show, one show. One show. Hmm. Uh, well, as soon as you started bringing up shows, the first name that went into my head was RSD, Rob Smith. Mm. Uh for a number of reasons, um, he he was a lot older than all of us. You know, he must have been, uh, he would have been mid to late 40s, yep. maybe even 50 at this point. I don't know. He looked it. He, he was an old pirate, you know. Absolute sweetheart. Most humble, grounded, down-to-earth guy. Yeah, I have a, I have a real quick three-parter. Number one, <laughs> number one would be when Tony, like, uh, headhunter slash he was yeah. just on the brink of addison groove played modern math was insane yeah, musically and sonically that was un- it was the first time i think a lot of us had heard like what was is now like kind of like footwork inspired by juke and that yeah. kind of thing yeah footwork like foot crab that was such a crazy i remember hearing that and being like this is the next next genre mm-hmm. um part two would be for sure like again to mention that end type name and when we moved the night to the other venue over like that is like i to this day i can tell that story and tear up it's unbelievable i want to i want to get in depth on that story in a second mm-hmm. but sorry go yeah. on uh and then number three this happens to be in three separate venues as well was when mala played our mm-hmm. anniversary mm-hmm. 
and he played the first entire track with his eyes closed, mm -hmm. like in meditation. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. soon after played a Koki dub plate and rightfully so um, hit the breaker and everything turned off and people went berserk. And yeah. as, as, it, as it should during a Koki tra track, you know, and so those, that would be my. I forgot goal. about that. I yeah, that, that was that was an incredible show. And then another one that comes to mind was the one year anniversary anniversary with Pinch, who was also yeah a consummate professional and just very cool, laid back guy. He was great. Scuba was great. When I when yeah. I when I think of everyone we had, it's just mind blowing. You know, we we definitely had the the who's who of that sound. Um, you know, the Hall of Fame. I want to talk about the night that Modern Math moved from Lord Nelson's to the Marquee Room. Um, it happened because of a noise complaint. Uh, yeah. And uh, what was your relationship with the with Bylaw like up to that point? Tense. I would say it was a bit tense. <laughs> we, yeah, we kind of. It was before, at least myself, I learned any tact. I was definitely very emotional. And uh, yeah, w we would sort of deal with them on a weekly basis. I've never dealt well with, you know, authority. Um, so yeah, they had been hounding us. There were rumors that we were getting complaints that, you know, rival promotion groups and venues had been complaining on us because they didn't like these new kids on the block coming in and stealing their crowds and stuff. And then we were also being targeted by these people in, in this apartment building across the way. And so, yeah, it had been like this six-week pro process where we were constantly being hounded by city bylaw. And he was coming. And we were even going out in the street with decibel readers and reading, you know, holding it up and reading the base levels and this and that. And they were just out for us. And then, and then yeah, they, they uh, eventually got to the point where, you know, they said, one more complaint, you guys are done. And they showed up with a full-on squad of cops um yeah i seem to recall when that happened and the, and the loudspeakers got shut down on the monitors i i played nwa f the police what while i was calling roby that was playing like kind of quietly out of the monitors <laughs> so yeah we, we roby told us he's like yeah there's nothing going on like come on down and i don't remember what time of year it was it was probably early fall maybe this time of year but nicer weather yeah. you know i remember it was uh it was was it rainy it was a little bit it was maybe a little snowy or rainy and type was playing on my radio show and so i had n type with me and ah. and i was transporting him that night and i can't remember who right. i was talking to but when it came time to drive him to the venue instead of going to lord nelson's uh, we finished up on the radio show and I think even by that time, I said something about the party was moving. <laughs> I was announcing it on the radio. And so how did you move the party from Lord Nelson's okay. yeah, down the so, street? So yeah. this was this was like a, a miracle feat in showing the power of community and what we can do when we come together, when we work together. So the par party at Lord Nelson was shut down at pretty much 12 o'clock sharp. Um, we got the word by probably 12.05 that we could move it to the marquee. Um, so at around 12.05, 12.10, we started mobilizing everyone in the room. We're like, you know, but at this point, people were out in the street. We're like, guys, we got another venue. We're going to move it. We need your help. So instantly, everyone, you know, the core members of our crew and, you know, 
some of the court supporters and just about anyone who had a, a spare set of hands or, or vehicle or whatever came in. We started tearing down the video wall, tearing down the sound system, tearing down all the gear, loading it up. People were volunteering their vehicles and their trucks and driving it down. We had enough room in a truck to get all of the subs except for one into in, that we rolled down the street we, we, yeah Remember? it was it was about five we blocks away so we we rolled the third sub down the street um on on a dolly or they had wheels on them at the time um yeah so we're rolling it down i, I seem to recall someone like pushing it on a skateboard they were like on a skateboard behind pushing the sub down down eighth avenue or seven whatever it was um yeah and you know there was just like this excitement and like it was it was magical you know like these kids were like holy shit like we're part of this we're moving this party so yeah. we had everything torn down and over at the uh at the new venue by probably 12:30 12:45 we were set up and type showed up and we opened the doors at one o'clock and he started playing pretty much exactly it- when he was supposed to start playing at lord nelson and, and it was just magical. Like it was honestly like I like the our we moved everything over. Tearing down and setting up that sound system is not is like is a thing. There's like just the there's a hundred and fifty pounds in cabling alone. We had again like that full entire party and then when we got back to ready almost to start the party, we had a, a very polite, calm cue of all of the people that were just raging and partying at the party before and they're just standing in line waiting to get in completely understanding like almost like the most amazing show of community i was just so 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 thrilled and just like in love with just how people were reacting to this enormous thing that just kind of like happened in their their nightlife culture you know yeah there no one complained that you know the that the venue had changed they'd lost an hour of their party time if, if anything they were excited to be taking part in this moment that we didn't know if it was going to work we didn't know if you know we had never used this venue before we had never sound checked it we didn't you you never know when you go into a new space what's going to happen so it was a shot in the dark if if this event was even going to work out but you know through the help of the community and our, our our crew which was so dialed in at this point we'd been doing the night and we were just we were on a on a frequency together you know, we pulled it off, and uh, and I just remember, I remember standing at the back of the room, you know, me and Sandra mm-hmm. together with our arms around each other, like, what did we just do, you know, like, this is, this is crazy, and, and, you know, and, and rightfully so, that night went down in, in the annals of Calgary's, you know, nightlife history, that, that, that's never happened before, it will probably never happen again. So, where is the Modern Math brand at today, in October 2020 what's it doing it's in our hearts tattooed directly in the middle of our chest yeah we both have matching (laughs) we got matching tattoos it's it's in our heart it's in our our memories forever and and you know it's it's one of those things it's like it's like riding a bike it's like riding a skateboard that if we ever did want to pick that up again we definitely could um but at this point it's it's in the archive of of you know achievements that i know we're both very proud of and that you know still still permeates the culture today you know like uh my uh my my daughter has has one of the modern math hoodies that we made you know we had the design we had the the cobra logo and this was after the night we got the 
this Cobra logo designed by our friend Michelle Vu, who's super talented. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, um, we should have had that logo years prior, but you know we didn't. But um, anyway, my mm -hmm. daughter has this sweater, and she gets asked about it all the time by her peers and. And you know, like these kids, they'll they'll be like, "Oh, your dad did modern math. I heard of that, but like they haven't heard of it. But it's out there in the local collective unconscious. People that weren't there that have no connection to it, they've still heard of it somehow, you know. And uh, and you know, like it's it it it's an iconic name and an, an iconic brand and symbol that I think we can be proud of that we were you know the creators of and. Uh, I, you know, I'm thankful. I, I don't, I don't know what it will ever do again. You know, we're all both on our own separate, different paths, and music will always be a huge part of our paths. But with the world as it is now, who, who knows? You know, like, so I, I think uh, having this conversation and reliving these memories is, is such a gift. You know, to, to go back on a time yeah. when we were all different people and the world was a different place and. Uh, and yeah, I'm thankful to have experienced that that period. So I, that's what Modern Math is for me, is just a, a good, warm memory. And uh, yeah. What about you, Sandro? Yeah. What's the what's the legacy of Modern Math? Yeah, I think Modern Math, Modern Math had to happen. I think in, in wh what was going on um, and where it was happening, Modern Math sort of had, had to form. And it just happened to channel through kind of like us in our crew. And so I think modern math is, is forever in a way. Like it's something that, again, like Dan said, like stories are told. Everyone has a perspective or like that was around at that time, whether they've heard stories from other people or what. Just really, it really left a mark. And like Dan said, I think if we were, were to sort of like pick it up and do something with it, it would both make sense and, you know, could be subtle, um, but also would have enough of kind of like a feeling to sort of, continue continue sort of building that energy and i think there's a lot of um yeah it sort of it does it lives on i still think of it to this day it's definitely something i definitely haven't parked it i haven't but it's like we you know we ran a label out of it for a long time and that music is i'm sure people are still listening to it and that kind of thing but yeah i think modern math is something that will forever yeah, forever exist in, in one form or another. I do feel like it was a bit of a spark. It was like a spark of the flint that kind of started a movement in our city. And so where it lives now is in its influence as to how it, it influenced future groups and what they're still doing today. You know, there's producers here and crews here who are carrying on that sound and carrying on, um, you know, that drive to, to push that music and that energy and whatever. And, and and modern math is part of their story as well, you know that that helps spark that. And so, you know, definitely shout out to to some of the crews that are carrying that and continuing it, and you know carry that uh, that hunger to push things forward. We're going to listen to a mix recorded by Dan and Sandro in 2009 under their Piranha Piranha moniker. But first, we're going to hear from a legend in the Vancouver scene. Crystal Precious is a Vancouver-based rapper, singer, writer, actor, and host. 
while her first love is raving. Crystal is co-founder of the Vancouver Burlesque Festival and served as festival director for its first six years from 2006 to 2011. She also co-owned and managed the infamous West Coast Underground Cabaret Dollhouse Studios from 2006 to 2010. The spot served as a community hub for different corners of both the West Coast burlesque and face culture movements. I visited the studios in November 2009. I saw things you people wouldn't believe. Check out photos from the dollhouse on the Rave Dad's Diary Instagram. Crystal and I spoke via Zoom about the dollhouse studios and the important role it played in the West Coast party scene. I have to give a special shout out to Crystal. She's an amazing friend, and she's actually one of the story sparks for Rave Dad's Diary. She told me I should get to work documenting what's happening in our musical subcultures. I've taken that idea, and I'm running with it. I'm going to shut up now, and Crystal is going to tell us about what she was up to in 2009. (laughs) I was doing a lot of burlesque. I was coming up in the global burlesque scene. I was shaking ass tassels and being juicy and dominating stages. I was performing at all the summer festivals and raving very seriously. And we were running our fabulous rehearsal space. crazy women (laughs) they say that very affectionately a lot of burlesque girls punk rock girls uh musicians and djs and artists who were a little rough around the edges kind of on the sidelines of being professional nightlife uh people you know kind of sort of looking up and being starry-eyed about doing that but not quite there yet and I was doing a lot of late night dancing. We had a studio over in Gastown for a long time that was, we couldn't, uh, we no longer were running it and we needed a space for all our shit, honestly. We had about 800 square feet of costumes that we used for our shows and we also missed partying a lot. And so, we were looking for a space. This is myself, Kara Long, and Lindsay Wood, Cherry on Top, who uh, were the Sweet Soul Girls, the original Sweet Soul Girls with me. And uh, and Kara also ran this clothing line, the Sweet Soul clothing line, which was hugely popular at that time before boutiques died a terrible death in 2009. And uh, they had this, they, she had a friend who was you know, using a warehouse to sell accessories out of in the fashion business who wanted to move out. And she said, I think this could work for you guys. I think that rent is cheap enough. There's enough space. And there's a few things here and there that you could probably make into a fabulous studio. So we had a friend uh, come in on it with us who, you know, fronted us the cash and uh, wanted to run the bar. Uh, good old Joe or Pepe the janitor he always wanted us to introduce him as because he liked to have a low profile and uh, we set to work transforming the space it was 3,000 square feet 
and it was in Mount Pleasant, which was perfect because it was a central location, not downtown. That was very important to us because we wanted to avoid sort of toxic male energy, to be honest, that used to kind of try to get into our other space in Gastown. We wanted it to be somewhere that you needed to know where it was. You couldn't just sort of walk past it. It was also really funny because it was down the street from the cop shop, which we didn't realize until after it had long been renovated. It was an undercover, like it wasn't the police station, but it was some sort of fraud or detective unit. So we didn't, there was no way for us to know until it was way too late, but they couldn't really see inside. That was the beauty of this space is that in the front end, there was this sort of retail area. And then in the back end would have been the warehouse where all the products were. So the front retail area is where we put all our costumes and our pretty tutus and made it all look sweet and innocent and artsy. And then you would go through this doorway and there's a couple steps down. And then it was like a big, massive rave warehouse with a, with a glitter resin bar and a bright pink office and you know, crazy pink walls and graffiti all up uh, across the the um, back of the DJ booth. And, uh, and then because it was sort of inset underground, it looked very nondescript and you couldn't really tell it was there from the back parking lot. It just looked like a door to another, you know, warehouse. Well, I mean, then I usually began for me at noon or for Cherry at noon. She would come in and help everybody set up and put up the sound system. And we were different different in the sense that we always really needed to have a vibe and what's your decor going to be like? And people really went all out for that. So it was generally an all-day affair to set up. And then by the time the doors opened and it was sort of more down-temple, um, you know, early evening conversation level music, uh, and the bartenders were all you know, scantily dressed and ready to have a wild night of just literally shoving drinks as fast as they possibly could over the bar. And we would disappear into the pink office and get ready. Generally, I would step into the office as soon as doors would open, put on my makeup and my outfit, step out, and it would be full. And then, you know, the the show would happen maybe an hour and a half later, um, and then somewhere around, you know, 2.30, 3 a.m. Usually the shows would happen around midnight. We'd start at 10. We'd open at 10. The show would be about midnight. And then by about 2.30, 3 a.m., it would be like the banger DJ. It was a pretty steady ascent to a crescendo of debauchery. Uh, and then, you know, generally the last straggler we would try to have leave at 5 The key was that at the beginning of the night, everyone would show up and it was pretty and glamorous and, you know, everyone was being on their best behavior and excited and joyful and it would seem pretty chill. And we'd have some chill music, you know, cocktail loungy business, you know, the cops would roll by and go, oh, look at these cute girls having their cute costume party. There's, there was usually, we used to call it the cliff. Like, are, thing, are we approaching the cliff? You know what the cliff is. I'm sure you've observed the cliff at many parties. As my, you know, raving investigation of the city continued to uh, expand, I started meeting all these awesome crews who really needed a place to play. Because as I said before, the bars weren't having it yet. It was very all 
you know, boom, 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 let's serve as many vodka slimes to the weekend warriors as we can, and all very Granville Street, and that wasn't really the scene at all that these crews wanted to have. So, you know, people were sort of doing these background underground parties, but they didn't have the capacity that I that we did. And they also would tend to get shut down all the time. So we had a lot of crews coming and saying, hey, can we, you know, come and, and play drum and bass? The shot DJs showed up. Um, uh, the glitchy and scratchy integrated grime unit guys had just formed together. Um, the Joy Scouts guys who did the sauna truck came and did shows. The Teams Canada people who were involved with the livestock crew and all the guys that later went on to build Fortune Sound Club, that's where they would have their own private parties after throwing events um, sort of in bigger clubs for like their fans kind of thing. Uh, the Funk Hunters did their first party there with the Moo Crew. I mean, one of the first ones that wasn't on Galliano Island, um, which is where they came from. We had, oh, and we had like a good queer cabaret scene ca come in because we would do like a cabaret earlier in the night, which was part of, you know, the aren't we so sweet hands under our chins, blink, blink situation. The Fungineers would, did one of those and it just seemed really chill. And then later on, we would get into the big basement situation. There was a lot of different types of music that happened there. So for a lot of people who came to one event and then decided to come a couple weeks later for a different one, they would get to discover a new type of music. And it was also really exciting to learn how different crews wanted their music to sound. We had a lot of different sound systems in there. People were really passionate about it. And music was just always playing on that system. Like I remember, you know, Michael Red coming in with the system. We used his system a lot. We also used Darby application system a lot. And he would just play records on it all afternoon because it was fun and because we were into it. Um, but it was, you know, learning about all these new, there was a lot of new fresh sounds happening. And so it was a, an exciting place to discover those things because the internet wasn't as, like it wasn't, those things weren't as accessible at the time. The dollhouse could have made money. I mean, the business model that we had wasn't, it wasn't really about profit, to be honest. Like we just wanted to be able to pay our rent so we could rehearse there and have our, a place to have our costumes and have a place to hang out. If we had been allowed to even have two more events um, outside of that, four events a month, then we would have been able to make improvements and buy bigger stuff. And, you know, maybe I would have gotten paid enough that I wasn't reliant on social currency to get me through my life. But by the time we fought hard enough to make that a reality, uh, you know, I was kind of already over the lifestyle. We were all kind of over the lifestyle and uh, it was pretty close to getting to uh, getting to be the end there. I think that I hope that the legacy of it is that it was very unlikely and still possible and it still happened. I mean, it was, you know, a dusty old warehouse in an office building on a random street and we didn't have a huge amount of money, but there was this rebellious sort of whimsical escapism to it. Uh, and I think that was charming, you know, and funny, kind of. Like, you're like, what, this is happening? I think that 
having really safe spaces especially for women and especially for people to feel okay about being sexual but also being you know fluent in the language of consent and respect that was basically the biggest reason why I wanted to have a, a venue and why I continue to want to have a venue someday because those values need to be reinforced in our scene and you know we're getting into a better space but largely the electronic music community is still run by men and uh you know stepping up and being sort of a bigger player in providing space and being able to uh you know enable uh that type of culture to thrive is really important to me You're listening to Rave Dad's Diary on 90.9 FM CJSW, broadcasting on Treaty 7 land at the University of Calgary. We just heard from performer Crystal Precious talking about the Dollhouse Studios, which existed in Vancouver from 2006 to 2010. Crystal's awesome. Check her out on all of the socials. The last two pieces of music you heard were by Calgary producer Homesick. Homesick's helped me out a lot by giving me music beds and designing a Rave Dad's Diary logo. Thank you, Homesick. For the rest of today's program, we're going to listen to a mix recorded in my basement by Dan and Sandro in 2009. I caught a ride to Shambhala Music Festival with Dan and Sandro in 2009, and I remember listening to this mix over and over while driving through the rolling foothills of southern Alberta on our way to Salmo, British Columbia. Uh, this this mix in your hand, do you remember anything about recording it, um, making it, burning it onto discs? Totally. That was in our place, Paul. Yeah. That's where we recorded it downstairs. Um, and uh, yeah, this this too, like we, we had a pretty good way of it kind of like splitting off the Dan would mix this one these tracks and I would mix this track and we kind of just like played to our strengths and tried to zen out and I don't I don't know if we we had to do a couple edits or takes but we did we did some cool like sort of sampling as well on the on the mix that gave it this sort of story or curve to it and um that was really fun to and I think that's something that to this day was something that we did inherently. We didn't plan it, but we always did. We kind of like told stories where we played with energy or vibe. Um, and, and to this day, it's like, I, I get razzed about it too, because, you know, like I, you know, when I'm exiting my car, I like turn down the, I like mix as I leave my vehicle, as I pick music very particularly to like follow up the next track so that it is like this energy or whatever. And I think those are, that's stuff and, and lessons that, you know, in curation that I learned from playing with Dan for years. And so, you know, there was a part of that Prana Prana connection um, that was very much like this, like transfer of like sort of rhythm or like the, the how we navigate that sort of music, you know? So that's an interesting time. Yeah, it, I remember we sampled, uh, I don't know if it was like a national, it was, a, it was like a YouTube documentary about piranhas and there's this guy talking about their, their behavior and and uh that's how we got the name of the mix unique behavior because he talks about piranha's unique behavior and and i do remember yeah. in we used to do interviews back then and we would talk about 
you know, people had asked about the name and this just came to me. Um, thing about piranhas is they're a very misunderstood creature. You know, they're, they're, they're kind of mythologized as these like terrors of the deep, you know, they're sharp teeth. And if you go in their water, they'll, they'll eat you alive and, and this and that, but they're actually very misunderstood creatures. The piranhas live everywhere. It's the most common fish in the, in the area. They are very dangerous when they are closed and trapped in smaller pools. This is what we want. Unique wild piranhas. At those moments, I would not die with them. Well, these uh, voracious monsters haven't turned up yet. I don't believe the Hollywood stories. I mean, we, we just haven't seen any uh, piranhas. We're in sort of hot piranha territory, so we're told. I don't believe they exist.
speeches because it's all about the music. You just heard a hardcore treatment of hot shot dog plates from down Jamaica way. Right about now, we're going to start to change the pace and change the style. During the course of the night, we switch and we swap and we ride around the track together. Together, 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 together. from now to make a way. Right about now, we're going to start to change the face and change the style. During the course of the night, we're switching the swap and we ride down the track together. Together, 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 together.
shall request all the gallon from north, south, east and west. From your body look good and you know you have the God bless. Rock wide.
Brakes on, brakes on The car is running up to downhill Head on, the scratch is coming slowly downhill Head on, the scratch is coming slowly
minutes, she thought. After several minutes, she thought. After several minutes, she thought the piranha was dead, and then she was removing the, the, the fish from the boat, and the fish caught her. The big bite here. Oh, he was just removing the hook from another piranha and approached a second one that was supposed to be dead on the boat, and this, this one took the bite here. Yeah. Oh, you behind And I don't have to remind you To stick with you 
artists, girl, them round ya. Girl from down the country, and girl from down the town, ya. If you check the phone, ya. Kimona, Simona, and Sonia, Ramona. Girl, love you, the Sonia. Call Kiki and tell him, send me a pona. Had the highest grade, me can relax, me lay your Roma. When me touch the road, the girl, them say ya. We had them on ya. Feelings are carried for Fiona She want me, she says she want to be a sperm donor Bush to the bone, me fresh from California When me touch the road and girls smell them Calonia Episode 4 of Rave Dad's Diary is coming to a close. That means I'm a third of the way through Season 1. If you're following along at home, in four short years, I've gone from living in the middle of nowhere, central Alberta, to hanging out at the vanguard of an awesome new subculture. Don't forget to check out the new Facebook group for Rave Dad's Diary. I'll try and post clever things there from time to time. Rave Dad's Diary is written, produced, and hosted by Paul Brooks. The show is produced on Treaty 7 land at CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary, Alberta. Season 1 theme music is Orchestral Lab by Guido, released on Punch Drunk Records. The Rave Dad's Diary logo is by Homesick. Tune in next week to hear my conversation with the Funk Hunters. Stay safe, and we'll talk again soon.
There is too much water around here. Piranhas are far away from the mainstream, where the water is clear. So we must find another place. 